magic comes from pain. Trying to tell you, you are not alone here. You love magic. You it in your soul. Want me to come to Philly with you? Send you epic quest. It's just a promise, motherfucker. This is our last dance. This is ourselves. Under pressure. Under pressure. So, hello, Philorians! I am with today podcast extraordinaire, Clara! Oh, hi! Thanks for having me, Kath. So, Clara is uh, the host of the infamous Philorians, uh, the Philorians United, that's the podcast I am right now, Physical Kid <laughs> Weekly, <laughs> with Danny that we got during uh, All That Josh, um, <laughs> that I traumatized during All That Josh. Now it's your time to be traumatized. <laughs> oh, great. I'm so excited. <laughs> So today's theme is about uh, post-traumatic growth, and I was wondering, do you have a story about that? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot because I watched the the TED talk you sent me about this, and I think it's. I mean, I, I've I talked about this a little bit on our podcast last season, but like I experienced a lot mm -hmm. of trauma in my youth because I had two friends, one who was like my best friend, and then somebody who I sort of knew but had a very complicated relationship with who died when I was 12 and 14 and both in these like big oh ways. So my best friend died in a, uh, in a plane crash in TWA flight 800. And then the, yeah. <laughs> and then the, the girl who I had a complicated relationship with, she was murdered by a Charles Manson wannabe two years later. And it was like this huge national case. And so, Holy fuck. <laughs> right. <laughs> These were like really big traumatic events in my youth in that they like, not only mm -hmm. was it a friend of mine who died, but they were both in the media constantly. And so there was sort of a lot of being reminded mm -hmm. and, and triggered through that. And to be honest, when I was 12 and 14, I don't think I did a lot of, growing from that I think I mostly just was like dealing just processing the trauma period um but I think as I've gotten older and older and especially in the last couple of years so Siobhan who is the the girl who was murdered um the 20th anniversary of her death was just a few years ago um and I guess it yeah it wasn't that long before then that uh the 20th anniversary of TWA Flight 800 was, and I did a lot of reflection in the months leading up to those anniversaries that I do think really helped me sort of find ways to grow from them and stop seeing them as this thing that defined me in my youth and that, you know, stunted me or whatever. And it, it sort of gave yeah. me a chance to process them as an adult with enough time between what had happened and sort of, my coming to understand myself and feel like I had an identity outside of that to sort of move through them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much detail you want to get into, but that, that's, that's the story I decided to tell. Well, it's, it's <laughs> up to you. Like it's really up to you. I, uh, but that's the beauty I think of post-traumatic growth is it's in constant fluidity. Like mm -hmm. you said, like when it happened on the moment, you were just a teen trying to survive that trauma. Yeah. It's later that you look at it and you see like, how, how did I grow from that? Or how did I change from that? Yeah. And 
I like this um, this narrative because it's not one we hear a lot in media. We talk about uh, traumatic uh, post traumatic stress syndrome or like disorder or like people who are crashing down, but not that grow from it. Mm-hmm. And I think the magician is like the best example of like growing up from a trauma because hmm. like season per season it's trauma <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you don't grow from it you're really gonna be like well and I think that's actually one of the interesting things about um looking at sort of our heroes versus our villains right like the villains tend to be cautionary tales of what what happens when you go through a traumatic event so um mm-hmm. right like the beast was sexually assaulted throughout his youth and um ra- and he was not able to grow from it he instead sort of mm-hmm. turned his back on that trauma and and really became obsessed with power and finding ways to make himself feel large instead of small the way that he had felt when he was going through that trauma yeah. but then you look at somebody like Julia who also experiences a sexual assault and um while her sort of in right a lot of her initial feelings are the same and she just doesn't want to deal with it the fact that she gets support from her friends even when she is struggling and not you know, not making choices that are good for her or other people allows her to, like, it gives her the room that she needs to breathe and figure out how to grow from it instead of just, just sort of getting stuck in the trauma of the event. And I, like, making that a part of her identity. I, I feel very strongly that, like, that's one, like, that's a thing that you have to let go of. You have to stop seeing tra- the trauma as a part of your identity if you're going to be able to grow from it. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, we're going to talk about that, but the fairies is totally that when mm. we talk about season three. And uh, season four and five, well, I mean, the the gang just is one big trauma after another in the in each episode. So uh, it's kind of su- surprising how many of them survive at the end. Um, but before we go and do the whole recap of every character and their post-traumatic growth, we're going to have to do a 30-second recap oh of the whole season three. Are you ready for that? <laughs> Can I do it in less than 10 seconds? <laughs> of course. I'm just going to start the <laughs> timer. Ready? <laughs> and Go. Sad magic children don't have magic, need to get it back, find seven keys, Uh, bad things happen along the way, Todd's an evil German demon. (laughs) Yeah! 13 seconds! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna try. Um, So the magic is gone and they're all freaking out and now they manage to find each other and oh my god there's a big quest this is amazing but they realize that each quest have uh like a separate not a separation but a cost and then julia's a goddess but she's not because she loves magic uh, and quentin more than she loves being a goddess and uh margot become high king and what am i forgetting penny's dead and there's a new penny and we saw magic, uh, magic Quentin. Uh, Beast Quentin, it was hot. <laughs> fairies. <laughs> fairies. Yeah, fairies. Well, speaking of them, that's that. A thing that I, I I say a lot in this podcast, and I love about the show is how we always think the villains, the villains of mm. the start of the season, are never the the real villains. Uh, we 
thought the fairies were these big villains, but we understand that it's the McAllister and it's all the people that have been pursuing them and enslaving them and killing them that are the real villain and they're just acting out of survival. Yeah. And I think they uh, they were stuck in their way a lot and that's why they, got a, they took over Fillory. But I think by interacting with the ruler instead of just using them as, as puppets, like uh, they... Um, the fairy queen wanted the Margot to become more of the queen she saw she saw her to be, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Uh, she interacted with Finn and so like okay, like Finn was still mad at me and yet helped my people. That means there are good people in the world. Yeah. And oh, uh, they they took Frey and uh, they kept, they kept being nice to Frey despite her not being their real daughter. And at the end. She accepts the deal of giving the key if it means our, our, our people are safe. And I think she needed to see, to interact with others instead of like shutting herself down uh, for her to be able to grow and to have her people becoming safe. Well, though, I mean, and this is a sort of particular thing that's particular to intergenerational trauma like that, right? Like, she has experienced so many instances where people who appear to be good um, turn out not to be when push comes to shove, like when they have to make a choice between um, doing the thing that sort of accords with their values, doing the right thing and uh, doing the thing that's convenient, they tend to opt for convenience. And so it, it, it's kind of com- it, like, it's a yeah. really complex thing because in a way she is, she's doing some things that, uh, definitely don't seem like healthy behaviors in relationships in general, right? Like she is testing them. She spends a lot of time testing them, but it yeah. comes out of that trauma and it makes sense. And when she sees that these are all people who do put their values first, who don't, I mean, even Margot, who who tends to sort of be very pragmatic, she, even Margot is willing to mm-hmm. like put the the good first um the like you know capital g Mm -hmm. good trademark (laughs) first (laughs) the greater good yeah (laughs) right right like that allows that allows her to see that like okay maybe there is a possibility that they won't just be the fairies won't just be traumatized and re-traumatized and re-traumatized forever by every single person that they come into contact with yeah and but this um I mean, it's always like that's a tale of uh, when you are hurt, of course, you're going to turn and close mm-hmm. doors around yourself because you don't want to be hurt. And I mean, that's why they ended up uh, hiding themselves in this other realm so nobody could touch them. But when they ended up reaching to people and needing help from human, and that's yeah. where the fairy uh, queen had to decide between her people and her word. Yeah. And she to choose her people and i think the like uh, season 1 episode uh, season 3 episode 1 the fairy queen would ha- wouldn't have made that choice that at the end she yeah. ended up making yeah absolutely i think you're right or i think she trusted margot enough to be to say i'm going to die and my people will be safe yeah sorry i host a podcast i don't know why i'm nodding and expecting that it will show up on the <laughs> recording <laughs> <laughs> it's okay <laughs> But and and uh, that is something I had like when I was thinking of this team too. I never thought of the fairy as having trauma. I was just seeing them as inflicting it. 
but you know, like oh, we always say, a bully have its own trauma. <laughs> well, and that's—I mean, I think that's part of what you were talking about, right? Like the villains always are more complex than just villains, right? I think that's what I love about mm-hmm. um, sort of modern day fairy tales in general is that they they tend to add complexity, and sometimes that can be hard, right? Because you do have somebody who mm-hmm. is perhaps. Uh, inflicting trauma or engaging in unhealthy social behaviors or, you know, really hurting other people and sometimes intentionally, but at the same time, uh, hurt people hurt people, right? <laughs> That's the the sort of gist that you get. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. You don't have to say that it excuses the behavior to understand it and have some empathy for somebody who has been through something really hard. Um, it doesn't mean that what they're doing mm-hmm. now is necessarily good trademark, <laughs> right? Whatever. Um, but it it does help us to sort of see the good and bad in everybody and not look and look at things in such a black and white way. Yeah, and that's why Sky for me is kind of a mystery. Because she could have been really mean and harsh to Fen and Julia when she mm. try, they tried to help. And instead she was excited that she could talk to someone. Yeah. Well, I think that makes sense too. It sort of reminds me of like the stories you hear about people who have, who who have been abused for a very long time. And um, I I keep thinking about some of the like feral children case studies um, from Mm -hmm. the 19th and 20th century. People who, uh, they had, you know, they, for whatever reason, um, they were sort of not seen as, as full people by the people who were caring for them early on. And so they, they sort of got, you know, hidden in a room and <laughs> didn't have much interaction and they come out and they have no real concept of what society is like. They don't, have full language if they have language at all and yet they're hungry for that connection which is funny because we're gonna see that with the monster in season four yeah (laughs) yeah that's a whole whole different (laughs) ball game but (laughs) i have a lot of feelings about the 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 monster uh i think it's it's part of the looks like a villain but he's not Mm -hmm. um I like this analogy of the feral kill a lot, <laughs> and it was part of it's part of also of. Um, I entered the fandom at the end of season two, that like mm-hmm. I arrive on the like fandom with a capital F. You arrived on the scene. Yeah, when the last episode of season two aired, so I was like right into the itis, and I was kind of the voice of saying like. Stop being mean to Fen. <laughs> and people didn't understood until the until the uh, we saw in season three that Fen trauma turned her into someone that was not just someone's wife. To hey, I can have a personality, <laughs> and she looked into that. That was the thing that was so powerful for me about the series finale. And I'm not going to get into too many details, but like hearing Fen frame her upbringing as traumatic it was really important right like her father saw her as a bargaining chip and not as um a full person and he 
deprived her of so many things and raised her to believe that she was only good in terms of like she was only as good as she was as a wife and a mother and a sort of subservient creature and so it (laughs) right like all those people who were so mean to her including Elliot I mean he was such a jerk to her um because he was so focused on his own trauma and on feeling like he was sort of stuck in this relationship Mm -hmm. that he didn't want um they weren't really seeing the way that it was traumatic to her and I I think that's I think that's a really Mm -hmm. true thing about what I keep thinking about this is such a good topic to be talking about right now while we're in in the midst of a global pandemic because everyone is living through trauma and I think Mm -hmm. One of the things we're finding is yes. how little bandwidth we each have. Um, it, it it becomes very hard to really focus on other people and care for ourselves at the same time. At the same time, and I think people are really like feeling that and experiencing it in a very real way. And that I think is yeah. a lot of what Elliot felt with Finn. I. I- when you were saying that she saw herself as a mother or mm-hmm. as a as a wife, she was deprived of both because Elliot never saw her as a wife, and she lost her baby, mm-hmm. which is something that could have basically crumpled her. And instead, she you I think her turning into looking up for Margot is her acknowledging seeing Margot like this girl has a lot of issue and yes, <laughs> she's powerful and strong. And I want to like drive into that to a point where, I mean, season four happened, but, <laughs> and <laughs> but I think she needed to see a strong yeah. woman in order to be able to grow. But I think it was also important that Margot see her, like see Fen's strengths and see the ways that she could mm-hmm. learn and grow from her as well. But it, it, uh, taking it back to what you were talking about before in terms of like the, that post-traumatic growth, um, Fen did crumple at the beginning of season two. And that's something that I think is really important, right? Like you're right. We lost her baby. She had the like twin peaks log baby moment. And, Brittany was hilarious. It was really fantastic. <laughs> like she played it really well, but she did grow out of that. Right. Like, and I think that's, that's a really great, sort of arc for that post-traumatic growth because she experienced the trauma she lived through the trauma she processed the trauma she grieved the trauma she uh went a little went a little off the deep end with the trauma Mm -hmm. (laughs) but she also found ways to to grow at the same time and I think that's really important for this topic is that you're you're rarely doing, you're rarely just breaking down or just growing. There's usually a sort of blend of things going on at once. Yeah. And what what is sad with uh, Fen at the beginning of the season is Elliot and Margot have no clue what to do. Something no. I complain. They look at her and they're like, she's crazy. Okay, bye. Because <laughs> yeah. they don't know how to handle that. They are a- able to handle the Quentin kind of can- uh, sadness of being depressed, mm-hmm. but not the, oh my God, she's burping a log. And um, <laughs> I don't know if we take the uh, fan life from Fillory Cannon or not, but in one of them, Fog say to Fen, uh, oh, you should get rid of this and it's like baby. And she like pull out a knife and she's like, no. <laughs> so we see that she still carried this bruise of like, she still have luck baby yeah. in an arm. Like, okay, it's in the cupboard, but like, she's not able, like there's always going to be this part of her that's like, 
is mourning. And like you said at the end of season five, the beauty of what happened to her is that she, like, I think she has the most healing arc of the group (laughs) for uh, what happened to her, but she had to have this trauma that keeps on going in season three because it starts with her having the trauma of... yes of not knowing where her, uh, her child is to the end of the season where, oh, not only I don't know my child is, she never had her own her first breath and now I'm not a, a wife and I'm not a, a mother yeah. and I don't, and my husband is not the high king of Fillory anymore. Who am I? <laughs> and <laughs> it's kind of, uh, so, and, and yet when she, uh, she, this time she doesn't crumble. Instead, Margot, what she does is she gave her the power of being the acting king of Fillory, which is immense because she's the first Fillorian with a crown on her head. And the fairy, who who was the reason why she crumbled at the beginning of the season, told her how to be a good ruler. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of... It's, it's kind of... Um, she needed to, like you were saying, she needed to crumble. But I, mm-hmm. I think also she needed to learn that the fairies were not all bad, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think another really powerful, um, and in some ways maybe more central uh, traumatic arc in season three, or post-traumatic arc, is Alice's. Because um, Alice, oh, yes. right, like... Alice is struggling through most of the season with the sort of consequences of uh, her actions as she when she was in Niffin. Um, yeah, and uh, that's something that she has spent a lot of time. Yeah, it's just something that she struggles with a lot. And also, I think she struggled with her humanity. Yes, absolutely. It's that same sort mm-hmm. of "Who am I now?" kind of struggle right like if this if this identity that I thought that I had for my whole life (laughs) isn't there if my identity as a Niffin is gone who am I now yeah I I called her uh, Alice 2.0 because I think when she comes (laughs) back she's not the Alice of before (laughs) she even tell Quentin like I'm not that Alice anymore you know yeah and I'm having trouble with Quentin wanting to help her because I think he want her to be you want to help her to be the person she he thinks she is mm-hmm. and not the person she is. <laughs> or she he's could very be anyway, focused. Complicated, but <laughs> I <laughs> No, he's very focused on, on who she was. Um, which is I think a really interesting and different thing mm-hmm. from the way that this happens in the books. And granted, like in the books there's a ten year period between Alice becoming a Niffin and Alice coming back. Um, but I always, yeah, and one when of the Alice I, comes back, basically it's the end of the right. The book. So it may, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, if you only have mm-hmm. a week or two between when she becomes an infant and when she comes back in the show, then it makes sense that Quentin would still think that she's the same person that she was before. And like, he, he there, yeah. there's less of an expectation that she'll change. Whereas when that 10 years passed, Quentin has changed so much. There's, Mo- you know, like almost mm-hmm. more than a third of her life that she spent not fully alive, like as a Niffin as this other creature. I don't think he has that same expectation that she's going to be 
the same Alice 1.0 or whatever. And so I like I always really appreciated the way the trajectory in the book because he's really taking her lead and helping her become who it is that she wants to become as a human. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Quentin was not mature enough to do that. No. Uh, when um, Quentin post mosaic might mm-hmm. have, because he's he lived the life and understand more or, or understand more the nuance, the nuance. I think mm-hmm. uh, even when he talked to Alice after three oh five, we see that he changed. He yeah. He's frustrated with her because she's hiding things, but not because she's not who, she, who he wants her to be. Yeah. Well, in the Mosaic, in addition to sort of giving him a full life with Elliot and Ariel and uh, working on the Mosaic, it also gave him patience, right? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know that there's another circumstance where, I, I mean, it's not that he's not determined, but the sort of requirements of that particular task are so uh, monotonous in a lot of ways. And so for Quentin to take mm-hmm. that on and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make it through this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep going, especially after Elliot in mosaic land dies, right? Like that shows how much he's grown in its own way. Right. And he was supported through that mm-hmm. in the early part of it by Elliot, um, and by Ariel and by, uh, Ted Rupert, Coldwater Wa <laughs> by their son. But <laughs> perfect name. <laughs> I want to say I, I have a copy of the script now, and it just says Rupert in the script. I I asked Mike about that, but I haven't heard back. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but basically, what I've uh, what what one of the writer told me is it was Rupert. Then they decided mm-hmm. to change because they had the idea of Rupert Chatwin coming in season five. So they said Ted, but people have seen Rupert and he was credited as Rupert. So they created that like Ted Rupert thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and it's another thing. Uh, speaking of Quentin, of um, he lost. He, he's gonna lose. He, he made the choice of losing his father at the end of the. While yeah. in season one, he does everything to try to cure him. To a point, he's gonna kill cancer puppy, rip cancer puppy. All right, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, and meanwhile, at this moment, he decide no, like I had, I've lived this whole life, like I grew from this thing, and now I'm back into being young. So it must be a trauma for Elliot and Quentin a lot, especially knowing that Elliot yeah. refuses love. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I'm I'm doing all of this. It must be for a reason. So I'm sorry, Dad, but you gotta go. And I'm recording season four right now. And in uh, season four, episode three, he regrets it. Yeah. Yeah. So it shows that even the growth you have doesn't mean it's a growth you're gonna keep or you're gonna accept. Well, and not everybody grows at the same pace, right? Like, I think that's, I think that's important too. Yeah. And um, I think Quentin is the one that grew the most, one of the most in season three. Mm. Because he went from this sad, nerdy boy that still loved Fillory, kind of, 
to this, oh, Fillory is b- it's bigger than Fillory and it's bigger than myself. Yeah. Uh, the whole gang goes through that, but he, at the end of uh, the season, he let Julia go. He mm-hmm. let her be a goddess and I might never see you anymore. I don't think season one Quentin would have done that. No, and to be honest, I don't think season two Quentin would have done that either. I think, uh, to be honest, I think a lot You're of his right. growth comes from having to face his demons in the Depression Key episode. Um, oh, that episode. Which episode is that? Is that... <laughs> Uh, that's all six, six. Yeah, yeah. It's um, just after mosaic. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really big for him because uh, he he's always really sort of looked at his. I mean, again, right? Like he has sort of seen his depression as as an inherent part of him, and having to actually face those demons mm-hmm. head on and really think about how it affects him and how that voice telling him, right? Like, I, I think he, he's able to distinguish the voice telling him that he is worthless and that he should die from who he is and who he wants to be in that episode. And that gives him more mm-hmm. space to see the people in his life as, uh, as more than just the ways that he needs them and that, he like through more than just his relationship with them. I think that's a big part of what allows him to let go of Julia. Do you think him um, being from having lived a mosaic and having lost Ariel and have seen her his, his um, little boy grow and get married and have ki- kids and then Elliot died in front of him and then having to mm-hmm. give the key to yeah. Uh, to Jane at the end uh, uh, that's one of the most beautiful Quentin moments in the show if you want my opinion uh, but I think this also yeah. had impact him being able to beat himself up yeah because He's he like learns that he can he learns that he can make those choices for one right that that, that not everything just happens to him that he can make choices and uh, even when those choices are sacrificing something that means a lot to him and that uh, it took a lot for him to get, it's his choice. So that's one part of it. And then yeah. I think the other part of it is, as you said, right? Like he just, he lives through so many of those little moments that are, I mean, I don't know if I would call him giving the key to Jane traumatic, but like he, he goes through so many of these experiences that um, build resilience for him, that <laughs> he starts to be able to see, mm, yes. okay, there's, uh, like, I can get through this. I think going into that episode, into episode six, um, his where his attitude in the past, especially in season one, um, and especially in season one, would have been like, oh, this, this thing is happening to me and it's awful and I can't, I can't deal with it. He goes in with this uh, yeah. with this idea. I can deal with it, and even though it is extremely hard, and he feels and that you know it wears him down, and he feels at points like he can't. Starting with that belief in himself allows him to like really allows him to mm-hmm. grow and work through that episode. And I think you're right that that a lot of that comes from making those choices and and building that resilience earlier in the season. 
Yeah, I really like the word resilience. I think that describes Quentin well, and we're going to see struggle with that with season four because at the end, um, not only he's going to forget who he is, but when he he comes back, Elliot still won't be there. Yeah. And I think he's going to need all that that, that strong of character and that resilience and that learned uh, sacrifice for him to be able to yeah. Do season four. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't get easier. And um, something that is no, no, poor Quentin. I, I, I swear, I feel all the the episode is always poor someone, like poor Penny, mm-hmm. poor Quentin, poor Alice. <laughs> um, someone that is beautifully growing from her trauma is Julia. Yes. Um. I will ever be better that she lost her godhood. Um, oh, yeah. I'm on domain Same. to say I wish Penny, you fucking selfish prat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the fact that she went from I'm going to betray my friend and work with the beast to my friends are good enough without me and I'm going to do greater good is so huge for Julia. Yes, absolutely. And I also think that like the whole, her whole experience of coming to terms with being a goddess is it like very, Mm -hmm. very much a, like a a, like traumatic experience. I, I think it's a metaphor in a lot of ways, right? Like the power that she gets is that, power that comes through growth but to grow right like she has to she has to face the horror of of being raped by a god and so she doesn't want to do that at first right like her instinctual reaction is i don't want this power because i don't want to deal with what what gave it to me right like i don't i just don't want to contend with this Mm -hmm. i would rather i would rather turn my back on this and turn my back on everything that's everything good that could come out of it. So for her, like a lot of the season of coming to terms and accepting um, the the good that can come out of it, the power that she can gain, mm-hmm. the good that she will be able to do as a goddess, I think a lot of that is just her reconciling with and facing the horror of what she went through that is her being willing to look her trauma in the eye and really deal with it um i mean i yeah it just it 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 feels almost like too obvious of a metaphor to me but i also i really like her journey no but i mean obvious my metaphor there for a reason to be obvious but (laughs) i think also a Julia, in order to accept and use this as a growing platform, she needed two other person. Alice, who told mm-hmm. her, this is yours. When I felt it, it wasn't Reynard's. Yeah. And she needed Fen because Fen basically said, like, Fen is known to be the one that care and help. And she met Fen when Fen said, I don't care if a species is a slave. Mm-hmm. And and Julia had to snap her back like, yeah, yo, that's not cool. <laughs> but at, at the same very, time, 
they have these very parallel journeys in season three because they they both are mm-hmm. right, like it is the period when both of them are really contending with their traumas from season two and like you said yeah. i mean fen's initial initial reaction is like i don't care if there's slavery i'm gonna turn my back i mean it's sort of looking at it from a different angle but like she's turning her back on um the horrible things that are happening to the fairies because the fairies hurt her and she doesn't want to deal mm-hmm. with the the complexities of that situation and she doesn't like she doesn't want to face what happened to her and so she would rather turn her back on evil which is so so not in her character and so right like julia and fen no. really do help each other in processing their trauma by even though neither of them wants to face it themselves, they help each other face it in a way that I think is really profound. Yeah, I think they couldn't have saved the fairy if they were not working together. No, and even when and what I like is when Fen was reluctant, Julia understood and said, like, okay, I Mm -hmm. found a way to talk to the fairy without you. Or like when she was a bitch to Sky when they were like making magic, she didn't say, like, Fen, this is not nice. You know, she let her feel her feelings and yet Mm -hmm. let her help. And I think not denying how you feel is important. Julia very much and that's that's exactly it. Because Julia very much focused on how Fen was actually feeling and who Fen saw herself as and wanted to be whenever she was talking to her. It wasn't mm-hmm. this is it wasn't judgmental. It wasn't like this is bad. It was an appeal to the Fen that she knew. But did she know Fen? I think she saw her. I, I mean, I don't think so. she knew her super well, but mm-hmm. I do think she I think she saw her and saw the way that she was with other people and saw the way that Fen was with her. And I think she uh, Julia was used to a broken queue to know mm-hmm. yeah, that that's true. not all broken person mean um, and I said two person that she needed Julia but she needed a third Josh who oh, is yes, the one Josh. that is because of his action that that create lady of the three it's him that has the idea for her to like fix something that is she regrets and now that she has the power to fix don't live in regret and go do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and she helps. I mean, I don't know that she helps Josh, but I think like Josh goes through some stuff in season three too, which you talked about with my co-host, but like him coming to him, finding a way to actually say what he needs instead of just being bitter about it. Right. Like that's also an important journey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what's beautiful of Josh is that he's not, sorry, he's not the hero is always the one that's going to support the hero. And we need mm-hmm. those. So mm-hmm. he's, he, and he saw something in Julia, and instead of saying like, oh, uh, we have a goddess, let's do something about it. He's like, okay, Julia, I know she has regrets because I have some too. And we talked about it in the beginning of the season when they uh, are at Bacchus. Mm-hmm. And uh, J- Josh was the first one saying to Julia, I'm ready to listen. Yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, she gave him the little star. She gave him hope, mm-hmm. and I, I truly think that Josh was the first follower of Our Lady of the Three in some sound sense, mm-hmm. and uh, he kind of like incensed her in that moment of um, of her of creating who the Filarian will call her later. Yeah, I like Josh. <laughs> um, I to say. If I mean, do I have? 
I adore Josh. Um, the the more like doing this podcast made me love Josh. Because at first I was like, oh, he's he's just this goofy guy. But the more I look into him, I'm like, holy shit! <laughs> so much heart. <laughs> he's such a sweetie. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Speaking of people who need people, Fen needed another person in her journey, which is Todd. Yes. <laughs> huh. Todd. Yeah, no, I like that because even uh, in, in the end of season five, when she talks about the world that she wants, she wants those cool movies she watched with Todd. Mm-hmm. I think like she needed also like just a fun guy to hang out and eat chips and watch like probably Die Hard 1, you know? <laughs> well, and I think also Todd, we don't see it much because we mostly see him as a goofball, but right, like he wears his heart on his sleeve in some similar ways to yes. how Fen does. And so, right, like I think she can sort of see the way that he looks up to Elliot and see pieces of herself reflected in that, though obviously different relationship, um, different types of daddies. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I think I think he's like such a great friend for her. Like I, I still think I still think uh, Todd and Fen should have gotten together at some point. But I understand why it didn't happen. Um, but I do think there's like there are enough similarities and maybe a better actual analogy is that he's kind of like the brother that she never had. Oh, my God, you're so right. Oh, <laughs> why do you give me feeling about Todd? Um, but <laughs> there's also the, the fact that Todd is, uh, Todd is the only one that can kind of understand what it is to be dismissed by their whole gang. Yeah, well, I mean, a, I like, think that's character. I think that's a Todd, that's a Todd and a Josh thing both, right? Like that's whole that's Josh's whole thing in three oh nine is that he feels like nobody takes him seriously and nobody really cares about him. And he and Josh and Todd express this in different ways, but it gives Fen a range of people who she looks up to and who she has a lot of respect for, who she can see, oh, they feel the same way that I do. Which is a really important thing when you're sort of going through shit is to feel validated, to yeah, feel like other people know what you're going through. And yet she saw also that some people can handle responsibility, like Josh, and some mm-hmm. people can't, like Todd, who was given <laughs> the fact that he needed to hide the, the... And I still believe that Margot knew he would have good thought and that Frey would find the eggs. I'm totally mm-hmm. sure that's what happened. Yeah, but it feels like... I think plot. that... I, I think that she, it, I mean, come on, Margot, they, they, like believing She's that real Todd smart. will do something correctly. That's not, yeah. <laughs> um, um, if we go, uh, I have, I had a question about Julia getting her godhood. Let's say that way. Uh, it starts with us not knowing what it is, this spark, and mm-hmm. we're discovering. Okay, it's um, a seed of of what could become her being a goddess by Our Lady on the Ground, that is from Reynard. Mm-hmm. Does Our Lady on the Ground inflict trauma in, to Julia by doing that or not? This is something I'm not able to answer. Yeah, I don't know that I can answer it either. I mean, like, like I said a little bit earlier, like I, I feel I have, I, I feel best about it when I think about it in terms of like, she had this trauma from Reynard, regardless. And I think Our Lady Underground wanted to give her a path to to that growth, right? Or maybe to reward her mm-hmm. in some way for her growth. 
But <laughs> I do think that to make use of it, Julia Julia has to face that trauma, which is going to involve a certain amount of of being re-traumatized, right? Like any time that you process something shitty that you've been with been through um instead of just like running away from it anytime that you don't just go straight to avoidance you're going to experience that trauma again to a certain degree um and i mean that's part of how you build yeah. that resilience but did olu traumatize her or did she nudge her in a direction that would both make her experience some of that trauma again and deal with it, but also grow from it. It's a really hard question to answer. Mm -hmm. What what I'm uh, I'm curious about is uh, that they sent Iris to um, welcome Julia into mm -hmm. her godhood because we know now that Iris is not a real. I'm gonna put that in quotation. God goddess because uh, she create made herself a goddess by killing the sister. Mm -hmm. And then I think the the God like took her as a, like you knew what it was to be human, mm -hmm. uh, so help her become the goddess like you. But I think what um, Iris did was just vomiting her trauma on Julia to a point where Julia was like, "I kind of don't want that." <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think I mean I think Iris also sort of Iris's approach to things because she chose to be a god and chose to do it largely to have a certain amount of power. I think she sort of goes in with the assumption that everybody yeah. wants the same things. Um, and that power mm -hmm. and uh, the, the power to a certain extent is Julia's goal. And while I think she and later Everett and whoever else, they talk about how the power like allows them to do good in season three, when you see Iris interacting with Julia, it never feels completely selfless. <laughs> no, I, I always felt like, even before season four, that Iris was icky. I always <laughs> felt that she was jealous. Hmm. And I think she was, kind of, because like Iris had to kill and to do all those things and go to those lengths to become a goddess. Meanwhile... Julia just got it. Well, she got a lot else with it too. <laughs> I'm gonna put that in quotation, but like when you put when you when you look at it like from a outside perspective, I'm like, whoa, I, I did all this work and her she just talked to her lady on the ground and she's gonna got it. It's not that, but like in a jealousy perspective, that's yeah, yeah. what it could be too. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I mean, we don't always see this is again going back to that empathy thing right like when we're sort of dealing with our own issues we don't necessarily see what other people are going through and even if we see even if we know that they've sort of been through a trauma we're not experiencing it the way that uh they are and so we sort of mm -hmm. look at them we look at what they're experiencing and we're like oh but that's you know you're fine we judge people's insides by what we see on their outsides julia seems very strong <laughs> in this season she seems like she is uh it, I, I she i in some ways i think like her own capacity for empathy which i think is what makes her a good goddess instead of a you know douche nozzle like iris um <laughs> is uh yeah 
right like that also in some ways makes it harder for somebody like iris who doesn't have the same capacity of empathy it makes it also harder for iris to then see oh well julia is going through all this shit right she she just sort of yeah is seeing the positives thinking that julia is well adjusted and happy and you know whatever exactly but I think for Julia to grow this empathy, she needed to be with someone that suffered, which is Finn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's the truth of where her power comes from is, right, like the spark is the spark is this God power, but I think the empathy is what grows it more than anything. Oh, yeah. I, I think so, too. She even said, like, when I do good deeds, it feels yeah. bigger. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a difference. I, I actually think this is really important. So Iris also looks at things as like good deeds, but she looks at it in this very calculated utilitarian way of like, I'm going to do the most good mm-hmm. for the most people in some like high-minded abstract way. But for for Julia to grow her power, the good that she does, um, it is expansive, but it also is very, she's very personally connected to that. Like she, it comes from her, it comes from relationships and desiring to help people in a like really sub- substantive way. And this person to person connection for Iris, when she does good, she's never really connected to the people that she's doing good for in air quotes. Right. It's always just, it, it, in a way it feels like the good that Iris does is about her. And whereas the good that yeah. Julia is doing is about other people. Well, yeah, just let's talk about the fairies. Like when uh, uh, she was talking how, uh, like when she becomes a goddess, she talks about the fairy and the dilemma, blah, blah, blah. And Iris says like, why do you bother with one fairy when Mm -hmm. you could create a world where they're safe? But mm-hmm. and in the end, what saved the fairy was Finn, uh, was Finn and Alice and Alice, ugh, Julia, just talking to Sky. Yes. Yeah. And right. Like it's her solution makes the fairy doesn't just make the fairies safe. It also allows them to have that growth that they need to maybe be more powerful fairies and are not just in a like powerful, like, you know, magic powers kind of way, but to have right. Like it helps them grow so that they don't so that they can not just be stuck in their past and in Mm -hmm. their trauma as well. Right. Like that's what Julia's approach creates and and allows and i think her fully embrace yeah her fully embracing her her, uh, godhood is when she goes into timeline 23 Mm -hmm. and it's kind of beautiful because the keys have their own mind and decide where you go and the key said julia and josh needs to be there uh we're gonna go on josh later but julia needed to see what is a godless word world what is a mm. world where Quentin got it so bad that it destroyed everything you loved? A, mm-hmm. a, a world that, where she see her best friend without empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the first thing she does, she give her shade. Because she's like, I'd rather live without shade than having a Quentin without empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And right after after this episode, she she goes do it do the the deed with with the tree. So I think she needed to see that broken world in order for her to fully accept her growth. In some yeah. sense, yeah. And I mean, I think there's again, like one of the other interesting things about that episode is Julia then makes a a really hard choice in that episode, right? Like she makes the choice 
to Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't actually rewatch this one, so apologies if I've got this wrong. But she she kills the Quentin in that timeline, which is an incredibly hard thing for Quentin her to do. Could kill himself. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I didn't rewatch that episode. Um, no, she give her shade. No, no she give her right. shade. No, and Quentin will kill himself. Yes, yeah. So she she is she is involved <laughs> in that, right? Like she makes a choice yeah. to do something that is both a personal sacrifice in terms of sacrificing her shade, but also as a sacrifice in terms of uh, mm-hmm. bringing her friend back just long enough for him to feel, for him to uh, feel all the shame <laughs> of everything that he's done so that he can, you know, disappear. Um, so like, that's an incredibly difficult choice to make. And again, I think for her to grow, she needs to see that she has choices, even when those choices are hard. No, I like that. Well, um, speaking of Josh, poor Josh. <laughs> poor Josh. I think that his first trauma, like we had the trauma of him being stuck in the in the Netherlands for how long? Because when he meet he meet he meet the Dick Josh, uh, basically he said like, "Well, people didn't come for me, and I became a badass." Because like, fuck everyone, basically. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. Um, but also, I think. He needed to see this Josh after his friend came to 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 take him from the uh the the the, the fifth key realm. I think if Josh would have met, met timeline twenty three Josh before, it wouldn't have the same impact. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's I, I'm uh, I don't like to say that, but I don't think Josh is the one that has the most growth in the show. No, I mean, I think his, there's ways in which he definitely grows, right? Like, and, and this season is, is a big part of that, right? He grows yeah. to sort of see that he needs to assert himself and assert his needs and tell people <laughs> what he wants, that he needs to um, be responsible for uh, for telling people when they are not meeting his needs and setting certain kinds of mm-hmm. boundaries. I also do think in his relationship with Margot in seasons four and five, uh, he learns to be less of a doormat um, <laughs> there too, because yeah. he, right. Like he learns to tell her, um, okay, you are really powerful and that's cool. Sometimes kind of scary, But also, you can't just consider yourself, either in our relationship or in your dealings with with other people, Uh, especially as a ruler. Um, Yeah, I think he has, I think he has a lot of growth, but it's, it it feels like it's a narrower range. In part, I think he's a little more self-actualized to begin with. Yeah, I think he had a a lot of time to reflect in the Netherlands. I think seeing him is to uh, it's timeline 23 that i we call dick josh um <laughs> died in front of him after yeah he told him like i did all those brave things but at the end of the day i'm still alone yeah i think he needed to see that to say like stop like stop uh hiding and be that goofy guy and like those people are your friend like and i think yeah. we see josh being more um into it than before we was just like kind of the second character in the background yeah yeah it's again it's that cautionary tale that like what could i become if i don't deal with my shit (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, speaking of what could I become, fog, poor fog. <laughs> poor fogs. <laughs> yeah, with an S. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of feeling about fogs, uh, but the, the one that I... I know him dealing with the library, making a deal with the library and protecting the, the kids by wiping their mind is out is he's acting out of a trauma. Hmm. I'm not sure which one. What do well, you think? I mean Fog Fog in our timeline also sort of right, he remembers everything from all the other timelines, right? That's my memory. Mm-hmm. So that means he remembers yes. watching them all die. 39 times <laughs> and I think the idea like I, I think they do become kind of like his children um, he feels now that now, now that he's now that he's gotten out of them what he needs and they've survived it is up to him to make sure they continue to survive oh, I like that I, like it, it kind of like uh, in the end it's not the right decision but this decision went out of like kind of of twisted kind of love yeah <laughs> well and actually i'll say one thing that i wish we had gotten in season five um we got to see so many people process quentin's death i think it would have i think we needed to see more of fog doing that that would be a great like webisode someday yep <laughs> just to sort of yep because i think he is very much a father figure if a like dysfunctional father figure to quentin well especially that technically Fox see saw Quentin die in all the timeline. He did. He absolutely did. But I mean, again, this is the the permanent timeline, and I think there's something. Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, I know that he stopped drinking and whatever, but I just feel like so much of we missed so much of Fog processing that grief because he was in the etheric realm for most of season well, five. I think that was how he processed his grief. I think. Um, Fog do not know how to process trauma. We see twenty timeline twenty three. Fog who is in a bunker in his in a, in his um, office, saying he killed a leprechaun, and say like, "Oh yeah, I tried to help." And Elliot and Margot blew blew themselves up. So I think in in part he's not kind of able to. He had so much of that same trauma over, like a bit. You were saying, like you watching the news of your friend and having mm. to face it over and over again. How you couldn't grow at that time. Yeah, yeah, that's because fair. of that. I think it's the same with Quentin, and I, I think if we would have seen a season six, I yeah. think we would have deal with that more. It, in my fantasy season six, it happens. Yes, I just uh, would like to talk uh, real quick about Penny 40 and 22, 23. Uh, Penny 23 is a trauma on two feet. And we're going to see him insert himself in Julia's life in season four. Mm -hmm. I am not sure if Penny at this time has grown from the trauma of what happened in this timeline or we're going to see it in the next two seasons. And I would like your idea on it. Yeah, I have such complex feelings about Penny 23 because I feel like, well, and especially Penny 23 and Julia, like I, I feel like him going after Julia is such a reflection of his trauma and of not have ever, not really dealing with it. And even mm-hmm. though I think he does eventually see her as distinct from his Julia, 
I don't think he ever fully processes it. And I never like, I, I just, I never got to that point where I was like, yeah, this is a good couple. <laughs> So, and I think that's a lot of it. Is no, I always was against it. And uh, yeah, I was so happy when yeah. they broke up and no. then it didn't stick. <laughs> yeah. In the, our fantasy season six, uh, they're not together. Uh, they're co-parenting, but not together. They have a good custody, <laughs> a <fair> custody arrangement. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, since you need to go soon, we're going to do the Lectio Divina, which is uh, okay. a religious practice that uh, monks do when they read um, their secret texts, but that has been adapted by Harry Potter and the Secret Text podcast, which they read Harry Potter and treat it as a secret text. They help okay. us to adapt it for the magician. So we take uh, one of uh, we take uh, the episode, find a a random sentence and there's four steps into it uh, to okay. see um, how can we become better person from that sentence. So since we're doing okay. the recap, I'm going to ask you to choose a number between one and 13. Oh, okay. Um, let's go with four. Four. That will be, be the penny. Okay. I'm just going to see how much line there is. Okay, so um, tell me a number between 1 and uh, 129. Uh, 87. 87. Uh, I'm going to go and try to find some way to fix this. So the first step of like like to be divina is what is going on. So what is going on is Penny uh, saying uh, this when you see Katie uh, about to OD herself. Ah, uh, okay. That's his line is I am going to try to figure out a way to fix this. Yes. All right. Yes. I'm going to go and try to find a way to fix this. That is heavy stuff. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> second step is the <laughs> is the allegory. So is there is there a story that it reminds you of? Um, a text, a book, uh, I don't know, a song uh, that this song, uh, this uh, line reminds you of? So I'm going to go and, uh, and try to find some way to fix this. Uh, man, so the... F- Hmm. First thing that came to mind, and this is super cheesy and I feel kind of embarrassed saying it, but uh, I rewatched Glee last year and um, Get It Right, the like song that uh, Rachel writes, the, the original song that Rachel writes in, I don't know, season two, season three, uh, where she talks about like all of the times that she screws things up. I think that's what it makes me think of. Right. I'm going to see how I can fix this. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm gonna go with um, Steven Universe. I'm just watching the finale. Uh, there's like mm, a no spoilers. There's a movie, and then after that they made no 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 no, no spoilers. No. Okay. There's a movie, and after that there's uh, there's like a mini series where it's like four years, five years later, where Steven mm-hmm. is bigger, and um, basically Steven all his youth has learned to have to fix it, fix something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right now he's, deal- he's dealing with the trauma of, 
okay, but what do I do when I don't, when there's nothing to fix? And yeah. I think uh, I'm thinking of that. <laughs> And uh, like when you finish to watch the, the the season, tell me. We're gonna scream at it together. Okay. Uh, <laughs> third step is uh, what does this sentence remind you in your life? I'm gonna go and try to find some way to fix this. Um. I mean, I think I think it's a trap. Uh, <laughs> I think our sort of instinct a lot of the time is to try to fix things or to try to act on them because we don't want to face the um, the things that we're actually feeling or that somebody else might actually be feeling. Um, and I mean, I'm a I'm a Virgo and also just kind of like a very analytical person. And I think my sort of default is always is always to do that. And it's taken me a long time not just I, I feel like I've done a lot of things where I've like learned how to comport myself in a certain way because I'm I see that there's benefit in it so like from a young age I saw all these things about how like people get frustrated if they go to talk to a friend and the friend immediately tries to fix it so I, I learned to stop doing that um pretty young mm -hmm. but I think it it took me a while to get to the point where I really understood that Uh, like what was wrong with that not just in terms of like oh it might make somebody feel bad but also you're sort of getting them stuck in that trap of as well of um trying to fix things and focusing yeah. on um focusing on action instead of living with their feelings and uh, moving mm -hmm. through them i it, it i have uh, for me I had this conversation with Jasper yesterday where they saw a friend going back in old patterns because the pandemic kind of is harder oh, yeah. on us right now. Oh, yeah. Um, and they went like in, being in high school and they're again. going in old patterns. Uh, no, thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and the thing is, uh, instead of having us as friends, the, the person went to other people that feed into that bad narrative. Yeah. And Jasper was really upset and I had to tell them at did you tell the person how you feel? Yes, did they and acted on it? No, then there's nothing you can do. At one mm -hmm. point you have to stop trying to fix everything. Like mm -hmm. you have to, the best thing you can do for this person is step back and that way you won't hurt yourself. Yeah. And um that's something I learned sadly um by myself uh being on social media and having a growing voice yeah. in the magician fandom i had to learn it the hard way of like okay i'm closing twitter and facebook and yep. tumblr and i'm going for a walk <laughs> it's uh, you know the the saying like suffering is pain plus resistance right <laughs> the the pain itself is not necessarily the same as the suffering the suffering comes from trying to fix the pain trying to resist it pushing back against it when it's 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 yeah. just gonna stand there <laughs> while you smack into it people cannot see the weird thing i'm doing with my hand but it's <laughs> <laughs> so you and danny having to step back during the backlash of season four taught me to do that taught me to say like hey i don't need to be there right now and hurt myself over something that i still want to enjoy Well, it's it's, okay, <laughs> it's a constant learning for all of us. <laughs> yes, and I mean, you and Danny are uh, the favorite target of a lot of people. Danny especially. And stop doing that, Danny people. It's me. Uh, it's fine. People can be who they want. 
um, so the last step is uh, what do you feel called for with the discussion you just had? So what do you, what do you mean by that? called for do you mean like like for me i feel i feel called for to uh continue to see my see my like to i, I feel called for to see what trap i, I am in right now mm. and try to stop this circle of yeah. of uh hurting and seeing like okay i'm gonna take a step back and see like that it's to a moment, like like you were saying, live your feelings. I mm-hmm. think I feel called to do that. Yeah, I think that's basically how I feel too. Like I, I, I'd say that I feel called to to recognize when I'm trying when I'm trying to fix something reactively because this is a very reactive moment for Penny, right? Like he sees it and immediately wants to fix it. I think taking a step back is yeah. something that I feel called to do. Yeah. And lastly, it's the vase and the flower. It's an expression my grandma used to say. Uh, you don't give the vase and the flower, which is you don't give a back-ended compliment, such <laughs> as um, you are really smart for a girl. So you give the rose, but also the vase. So <laughs> every episode we give a, a, a flower to someone that thinks did good and a vase to someone that needs a vase in the face. Um, <laughs> in the episode? Be, and, and since we're doing the read, yeah, or in or the, the season. Or for us, it's going to be in the whole season. Um, so whew, that's going to be hard. Do you? Let's go with the bad one. So we're going to finish on a positive vibe. Um, do you have a vase to give to someone in season three? Irene McAllister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- no, 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 no explanation needed. I think. <laughs> I, no, I don't think there really is. <laughs> One sort of speaks for itself. <laughs> yep. I'm. I'm gonna give my uh, my vases. I was. I was thinking of Irene too, but I'm gonna give it to a uh, fog for. Hmm. Doing the deal with the library at the end, I'm having a hard time with it. Yeah. And yeah. I understand he acted out of love and out of fear, but what the fuck, dude? I think more fear. <laughs> yeah, more fear. <laughs> and for the rose, who do you want to give a rose to? I'm going to give my rose to Julia. I think she's done... I mean, she did a lot of growing this okay. season, period. But I also think mm-hmm. her... Her sacrifice at the end was really, I mean, it was really important, not just to the plot, of course, allowing us to have a way forward, um, but also for her to be able to accept that things don't always go as planned. And that, again, she Mm -hmm. gets to make, like, some of the traumas she, there are things that are going to happen to her that are going to traumatize her, but she can also make choices even when those are hard choices. So I think that's, that's why I want to give her a rose is for sort of recognizing the choice she has in the matter and who she wants to be in each of those moments and then acting on it. Oh, I like that. I think I'm going to give my flower to Quentin, uh, not only for the whole growth we were talking in this episode for him but at the end he decide he decide to give his life and take care of the monster hmm. which is going to end up doing in season 4 anyway but um 
and it was like you don't don't try to talk me out of this i made my choice and it's for the greater good and i'm ready to do that sacrifice so my friend can have magic season one and season two quentin couldn't have done that and i'm so yeah. proud of my boy mm-hmm. sad little and- magic boy <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we see more of this. This movie is really showing a bit of the Quentin of the book at the end of um, the Magician yeah. Land a bit more. And um, yeah, it's I think it's courageous to do to be to accept to be in a castle with a monster. Yeah, forever. Hero pays the price. Yeah. On another note, I wish I would have seen. Um, um, Elliot as a, a, a bastard, Engl- uh, the, the bastard of an English lord. <laughs> what? That was supposed to be his identity. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much to help uh, us and come here. It was so fun. This was uh, delightful. I want to have you back because you're inside. A- your insights are always amazing. Uh, do you want to plug your your other podcast? Anything else you want to plug? Go ahead. This is your time. Um, so we have a podcast <laughs> called Physical Kids Weekly. Um, we we have done all of the episodes already. We have a couple other side interviews that we're doing before we close the books on it. Sniff, sniff. Um, so we have an episode coming out. I think it'll be this week with Dominic Burgess, who plays Ember. So that'll be a fun thing to look out for. Also, at some oh, wow. point, I'm going to finish cutting the extra Q&A we did with um, with Sean McGuire. <laughs> it'll happen. Pandemic, whatever. Uh, and then if, yeah, you exactly. like, if you are interested in books, uh, I have a radio show called Story Behind the Story, which airs on KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. Um, and I have a podcast version of that. You can find it at story.fireside.fm. And I have been really thrilled with, uh, the books and authors I've gotten to interview this year, especially, um, it's most of those haven't episodes haven't come out this haven't come out yet, but I did have one with Carmen Maria Machado, who wrote this incredible memoir about, um, the abuse she experienced in her first relationship with another woman that was just, it was amazing. I cannot believe I got to interview her. And um, I think it was, uh, it was really fascinating to hear what she had to say. So those are, I guess, the things I would plug. Well, go listen to that. And I believe, uh, believe me, it's worth the listen. (laughs) Well, Well, thank you you again. Good luck for, uh, for your quarantine uh, pandemic nightmare. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you too. Uh, and and uh, it would be fun to have you back in season four. It's really a delight to talk to you. Yay! Take care. <laughs>